You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. I trust you're well. And it's been a busy week for everyone and we've got a great interview this week, don't we? We do indeed. Ian Learmonth is the CEO of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which people will remember was created by the Gillard Greens um, coalition government, I guess you could call it, way back in 2012, has been one of the great success stories of the um, nearly the last decade. And uh, it's come under focus, I guess you could call it, in the last couple of months, particularly from the federal government's moves to try and change its mandate and possibly push it into things which I hadn't been investing in before. But look, I'm talking too much already. Um, let's have a listen to our interview earlier this week with Ian Learmonth from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Ian Learmonth is Chief Executive of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Thanks for joining us once again on the Energy Insiders podcast. Nice to be here, Charles. Well, you have just completed or your uh, the annual report, the last annual report for 2020 has been completed and filed for the uh, for the year. And uh, last week you appeared in Senate estimates. Um, we've got plenty of time to get into some of the achievements that you've done over the last uh, year and some of the other issues that are coming up ahead of you. But um, the CEFC is once again in the news, isn't it? Your your predecessor has been testifying, saying that uh, very concerned about some of the proposed changes to the mandate for the CEFC. Uh, are you finding yourself sort of under political pressure at all? Um, no, we don't don't feel um, that's necessarily the case, Charles. I mean, look, it's it's a great vote of confidence from the government to give us, you know, their plan is to, to provide us with another billion dollars to invest in grid reliability, and that's a fairly broad mandate, transmission, distribution, storage, generally uh, anything that's going to help uh, improve the, uh, you know, the state of the grid. So that's, um, you know, I guess that's what's attracting quite a lot of media attention, and that bill then, you know, as you flag, had a... Uh, series of well, open you know, submissions from the public and there was a Senate committee hearing uh, and people are, you know, focused on it to see, you know, what, what's it all about? Is, is, does it make sense to give the CFC additional money? What will it be used for? Will it be effective? So I guess it's understandable there's some scrutiny, mm-hmm. but um, no, we still maintain a very independent position. Yes, look, I mean, the the funding issue is probably not the question. I guess the the biggest question is um, what that, as you say, what that funding will be used for. And this grid reliability fund is an interesting fund. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that this is the mechanism, because it's pretty hard to unravel, for the UNGI program of the federal government to be rolled out through the CEFC by you signing contracts with the shortlist of projects, which is sort of half and half gas and half and half uh, pumped hydro. Um, I, I excuse me. I, I get a little bit confused about that. And you're not, you know, you're not alone, Giles. It was interesting with the Senate uh, estimates uh, last week. Um, there was lots of questions that that reveal there is some confusion ra- around this. So, um, 
So today, the ANGI program is being run by the government. So the department are, in fact, reviewing all the proposals. And as you say, there's some gas, some pump storage projects and so on, and how uh, they might support those particular projects to provide dispatchable energy into the grid. Now, with the passing of the Grid Reliability Fund, uh, which, you know, will take its... Uh, usual course, there is, you know, the government certainly are contemplating that that would give the CFC the ability to then pick up, uh, you know, what, where the UNGI program currently sits today. But, um, you know, we'll still look at all those projects on their merits and do they, are they complying investments? Do they make sense for the CFC to put capital towards them? So today it's been run by the department and would go onto the government's balance sheet. But tomorrow, if the, the GRF, as we call it, is passed, then I guess they will direct those potential projects to us. And, and Ian, could I ask, just uh, as you contemplate the Grid Reliability Fund, you probably didn't get a chance to listen, but we had Rick Francis, the CEO of uh, Spark Infrastructure, on this, this same podcast a couple of weeks back, and he mentioned that there wasn't really a shortage of uh, capital for transmission, um, but there was a shortage of kind of certainty of return um, around it. And, and I just wondered how you saw the grid reliability fund as you look at, contemplate what you might do with what, what do you contemplate doing with the money very broadly? Yeah, no, it's look, it's interesting. I mean, just on, in terms of grid investment, you, you know, you're right. It's it's where there's <clears throat> regulated assets. So when you know, transmission particularly finds its way into a regulated asset base, then they're relatively easy th enough things to finance um, because you've got that predictable cash flow and, and you know, lenders can come in and, um, <clears throat> and away you go. I guess the challenge is where that's not as straightforward and we're seeing a bit of that around some of the fi uh, financing ideas we've been contemplating for renewable energy zones where uh, you know, there's a build out of transmission to an identified site and then you know essentially the cost of some of that infrastructure is passed on to new generators and there's a bit of a chicken and egg issue about who's you know going to pay for the transmission first while you wait for the generators generators don't want to pay before they see the the grid so I think outside the regulated assets that's where things get get harder that's where things get tricky i think to finance yeah so that's what we have to play, uh, uh, play a role and, and, and you you could essentially take some of the potentially to take some of the risk essentially of of a project not eventually being regulated uh, in a transmission link to say a renewable energy zone uh, is is that the yeah, that's that's right, David. Um, you know, I think that's always been our approach: is to no need to play where you know all, all the other banks are comfortable playing. Let's kind of fill a fill a gap in the market, and, and and you know we would be prepared to to take some risk. I mean, you know, it's always a question: is it a sensible risk to take? Is a good use of uh, taxpayers' money You're getting the right return for it? But we are definitely considering taking those sort of risks that um and to because we, you know we're keen to see renewable energy zones get up and the build out of uh, you know quality uh, renewables projects so yes we, we're, we're kind of considering all those sorts of risks really as we speak
Mm. And and uh, I'll hand back to Giles, of course, but but uh, just continuing on this exact financing thing, then at the moment, of course, the transmission operators are virtually exclusively the transmission regulated transmission companies, whether they're government-owned, as in Queensland, or privately owned, as in New South Wales and South Australia, um, uh, and mix in sort of in Victoria. Uh, is it is it would you be advancing funds or and or equity in, conceptually to those same transmission companies and just telling them to you know you get on with it and and we'll assume the risk? It's almost the same question as before, but just yeah, how, quite how it possibly, works. yeah. And then look, we are working with some of those um, some of those players at the minute because you know they have you know their kind of I guess contested asset business which is outside the regulated asset base and that's going to need capital and that's that's probably where we're more likely to play so you know i hope that that we you know hope we've got some um, um deals that we can announce in the not so distant future in that regard but yes certainly i mean you know that we're not we don't tend to and haven't historically lent to any of the the state-owned transmission companies because they're you know they're normally state funded of course Hmm. Hey, just one more question on the crude reliability fund, just so I can just clarify it. So what you're saying then is that the um, the, the government and effectively Angus Taylor's office will be continuing with the UNGI until further notice. And presumably if the grid, the change in legislation gets through Parliament, then you will start inheriting that um, mandate, both the ones that may or may not have already been awarded um, and they haven't really done much so far in two years and those that are kind of left open. Is, is that right? That's that's the plan, that's the plan. So and I think yeah, if they've been written on the government's balance sheet, they'd stay on the government's balance sheet. We might admit, help administer them. Yes, and then the new ones, we would consider them as standalone okay. uh, new projects. And how do you feel? Yeah. And, and how do you feel about assessing sort of gas-fired power stations? I mean, I know gas as a transition fuel is the mantra from the government. It hasn't been within your bailiwick under the Clean Energy Finance Corporation up until now. You are presumably seeing a whole bunch of new other technologies coming through, like battery storage and things like that. Um, even gas-fired power stations, even fast-starting ones, appear to be old technology. Does does, does that sort of require a change in mindset on your behalf? Yeah, it's, look, it's an interesting one. As you say, we, um, you know, we're looking at increasingly new technologies and technology roadmap, I'm sure we'll touch on it, is informing of, of where we're heading. Um, and look, we've, you know, we've obviously played a role in, in renewable gas uh, in the past, in biogas, landfill gas and so on. Uh, in terms of you know, gas-fired power stations, is is there a role for the CFC in that regard? I mean, I think that's probably you know debatable. Um, is there you know if there was a large renewables project that wanted to do some to firm up some of its energy with with um, you know a couple of peakers that might be more in our in our space where we, that might lead to a, a greater build out of renewables or make. Uh, you know, make projects viable where they they wouldn't previously be. But I mean, I, I, again, it's interesting because we um, look. We have a guideline f- uh, for low emissions technologies, which is you know currently published on our website, and that says that we, we wouldn't invest in technologies um, where they're exclusively for generation unless they're uh, less than fifty percent of the emissions of the NEM. So that's that's our current board guideline. Now that's you know, up for debate and amendment and discussion and so on. Um, so we'll just have to see what crops up 
down the track. And, you know, of course, there's got to be a, a gap in the market uh, as well. You know, I think the you know, big, large players that own most of gas-fired power stations, EA, Origin, you know, they're, they're not obvious customers of ours in that sense. No. And, and if you've got um, this... And- yeah, just one quickly. If you've got this emissions target then of of of, of half the NEM, then that basically rules out any standalone gas generators unless that's changed, um, and uh, un- unless you can sort of put it as part of a firming package. So you know the emissions are then sort of calculated and diluted by whatever renewables it's supposed to be firming. Yeah, I mean that's under the low emission technology. Um, uh, definition. There's also it could comply under renewables if it was, say, you know, an enabling technology with a large renewables project. And you know, you've seen people like Infogen buy um, mm. some gas firming to firm up their, uh, you know, their generation to help with their CNI base. So, but existing ones, not not, not new ones. Yes, they're buying existing. No, that's right. And not, I think yeah. that's the sort of thing that that we might kind of hone in on. Um, much more so, you know, it's, it's uh, as opposed to, you know, the other things that you that you suggest. Mm. David? Uh, Ian, I just wanted to turn, I know, there's a $300 million hydrogen fund we could talk about uh, 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 potentially as well, but I wanted to ask you something I hadn't in the past and outside of uh, renewable generation, and that's that's electric vehicles. There's a, I just uh, this is one thing that frustrates me. It seems that as you know, we talk about energy security, and yet we're a hundred percent oil importer, pretty much, and uh, we don't uh, seem to be. The CEFC doesn't seem to be doing much in the area of I don't know finance for electric vehicle car fleets or that sort of thing. Uh, uh, is yeah. that something you? Yeah. Look, it's and look, it's a fair question, David. We we, we we're very keen, of course, on increasing. The uptake of EVs in the country, and it's it's not easy. Australia's really been a very slow with it for a number of reasons. There's not been a lot of affordable, necessarily a plethora of affordable models, EV models in this country. I mean, Tesla's kind of dominated, and they're not cheap vehicles. There's a concern. There's a sort of a range anxiety concern in the country, um, and so everyone thinks there's a somewhere that they can you know recharge, even if they most trips in, in a place like Australia are probably less than five Ks. Um, and then there's and then there's the sort of the general cost of of you know running these things or the, the cost of the vehicles, uh, availability of models and the cost of the vehicles. So we look we have been financing EVs through um, you know some of the wholesale financing programs that we offer. In fact we probably finance more Teslas than anyone. We've been trying to get fleet buyers interested in switching to EVs and we've had EV demonstration days in Sydney, uh, Melbourne recently as only up as recently as a few weeks ago in Perth where we've invited all those sorts of people you know because 60% of cars bought in Australia are bought by fleet operators and and sort of get seeing if we can kind of get them, thinking harder and, uh, and more about the idea of switching their fleets to EVs. Um, but, you know, look, it'd be fantastic if the state and federal government also took up, uh, you know, their own undertaking to um, uh, to introduce government EV fleets because the more you have in the system, of course, means the more people see driving around, they get more comfortable, the more EV charging is going on. We made the investment last year, interestingly enough, in jet charge, the um, uh, the um, you know EV recharging company here in Australia, we've come now got about 15, 16 percent of 
of Jet Charge. It's got a, it's a great company. Tim Washington, who's the CEO, very active in terms of the EV Council here in Australia. So look, we're doing what we can, um, but yes, Australia is taking its time. There's no question. And just uh, 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 one last quick one from me here is just your balance sheet overall or just generally, I mean, I think you, the CEFC funded about a billion dollars worth of investments last year, but it pretty much got that back from loans that mm. were repaid early and, uh, and, and loans that were never taken up for one reason or another. And sitting with quite, I mean, um, is it still a plan to grow the balance sheet? Yeah, it, look, it is. I think what has happened is we've reached a certain level of maturity because we've been lending uh, and investing for about seven or so years and increasingly, um, you, you know, when, if, you've, if you're 80, 85% debt, um, lots of the, the deals that we've written three, four, five years ago, of course, are either being repaid or refinanced. There's a lot of money coming back. And as you say, $942 million came back last year as we put out about the same amount out the door. So we've got, as at 30 June last year, we've kind of got commitments of about $6.2 billion with about $4.6 billion out the door. And the trick is... Now, how do we get our 4.6 up to, you know, 5.6, 7, 8 and so on uh, when you've got so much coming back? And, and that's, you know, you, you, you're kind of scrambling to, 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 to even keep a steady state. And I think it's, it's about finding, you know, bigger deals that are going to have a, a great deal of impact um, you're not always, you know, if you, and if you start doing a bit more equity with, with, with the harder transactions where the rest of the market doesn't want to go, those checks may not necessarily be as, as big. Uh, as we know, the renewables, wind and solar uh, market has matured. It's slowed down with, with the challenges around the grid and the lack of, the, of PPAs. So you've got all these different uh, factors kind of coming into play. Um, so we've got to work really hard to kind of even keep... keep um, the $4.6 billion out the door. Uh, but that's the challenge over the coming years. And that's, you know, no, we'll, we'll probably touch a bit more on, on what's um, over the horizon. But, um, mm. yes, trying to, to deploy, continue to deploy large amounts of capital in this space becomes a challenge. I'd, I'd like to just briefly just go back to the EV market. You, you described your open days that you've been having trying to get people to take up leases. It doesn't sound like, it sounds like you're a bit disappointed. And I'm just wondering, um, why has the lease market been slow to um, embrace EVs? And if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've kind of allocated up to $100 million with people like Macquarie and other people to sort of accelerate the rollout of EVs in Australia. How has that money been deployed, if it's been deployed at all, and, and to what effect? Yeah, it's been – look, it's been successful. The, um, yeah, the Macquarie financing is predominantly a Tesla um, financing um, – facility and um, that's that's been very successful so I guess you know people have have accessed that line of credit to, to buy EVs now you know interest rates are low um, <clears throat> a lot of people who buy Teslas you know may not necessarily uh, you know they might might use other sources of of capital to finance them and so it's only really one lever you know you, there's I guess there's there's other things that that 
we've got to get the economics. We've got, you know, we've got to get people thinking that buying an EV is ultimately going to be cheaper over the longer term than an internal combustion engine car. Uh, we've got, you know, there's there's a whole raft of things, isn't it? There's the cultural mm. kind of aspect. There's the um, we've got to have lots of recharging around so everyone goes. Well, I'm never going to get caught out. But but I guess when I drive I guess it. I guess the studies already show that um, it, it can be um, it can be um, uh, economically advantageous for for a leasing company looking at four year leases. Um, not much difference, if any, and probably an advantage having an electric vehicle. But um, the penny doesn't quite seem to have dropped yet. Not yet. I, look, I'm optimistic. Um, I think some more models, Charles, coming in, um, and someone being bold enough to. To, to lead the charge and you know I mean the South Australian government although the prior South Australian government had were going to move towards EVs for uh, South Australian fleet but I think mm. um, that may you know sort of okay. still be on hold okay. I, I want to before I just pass back to David one more question the CFC has invested in a lot of solar farms either as a financier um, sort of um, on, on, on debt and in some cases equity we've seen a lot of cases where some of these solar farms have been delayed because of the grid congestion problems that you mentioned before um, some of this has resulted in liquidated damages claims and declarations of force majeure and there's a few rumors we don't get to see much of it in real life because um, unless they're listed they don't have to bring those to account um, what's happening out there? With um, are you concerned about some of your investments, and, and to what extent um, have the delays been impacted, and have caused damages claims to be initiated and/or fought? Um, yes, look, it's a it's a very good question, Charles. The um, I mean, we've done twenty four utility scale solar farms, nine wind farms, and so nearly three gigawatts of of renewables and so we see quite a lot with um, what's happening out there and many of those are still in construction um, <coughs> excuse me many of those are in construction and yes there is a lot of challenges uh, you know there are challenges out there uh, you know around grid connection times cost um, when you've got hybrid <coughs> technologies wind solar or put a battery in there as well it's new, it's a challenge for AEMO, um, and therefore, and, and you know, power prices have come off in some cases. We've got merchant exposure uh, out in, in, in some cases. So there's been, <clears throat> look, we're a lender in, in nearly all of those deals, so there's still plenty of equity in front of us, so we're not at all <clears throat> concerned about uh, losing any money on our projects. But there's, look, there have been, there have been some restructures uh, in a number of cases, there have been, and you probably, if you, you may have seen an annual report, a significant increase in impairment charges that have just been um, introduced, sort of, in some ways, statistically across the board, just because of some, you know, some of these issues. We've had, we've had to increase our impairment in charges. So, you know, we, we're trying to address some of these issues in, you know, using the capital that we have, investing in transmission or the technologies that might help this along. But, you know, it will take a bit of time. And, um, you know, I think it's uh, until we sort of sort all of that out, we, you know, it may end up being a little, little slower, the investment horizon for particularly wind and solar for a while. And so I think the bad debt charges were about 60 or provision was about 60 million from memory uh, when I was glancing through the annual report. 
Um, Ian, you said we might touch or come back to the area of priorities for the CEFC going forward and just looking forward. And I don't know whether it's the CEFC sort of pushing its agenda out there, and I use that word pushing in, in sense in a, in a nice way, or mm. whether people approaching you. But 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 um, you know, I guess how much lending can you do and equity and investing, and and what are the areas of focus for you over the next twelve or even uh, two years? Yeah, well, um, certainly the um, you know the greed. Is you know we're trying to d- deploy capital already there, and we welcome the the passing of the grid reliability fund um, in the near term. And so the grid transmission will be will be a focus. Um, hydrogen, you know, the government has, have have identified three hundred million dollars on our balance sheet that we should be investing in the fledgling hydrogen sector, and so we're working at the moment alongside Arena. Who, you know, they've shortlisted proponents under their program. They've got a, a grants program, and they're and the, that's public. There's a list of uh, people on that shortlist. So we're we're seeing what we can do in terms of concessional debt or equity, possibly, to help those. I mean, hydrogen's it's interesting. I mean, there's you know there's a lot of talk of the, the big electrolyzer, um, driven by renewable energy, and Australia's got a, a an abundance, of course, of sunshine, particularly in the in the north of Australia. So I think the longer term trend uh, around hydrogen is is really exciting and positive. It's just um, it'll take a little while to kind of get the economics right, but uh, that's certainly over the coming years we hope to be able to make sig- significant investments in hydrogen and green hydrogen and everything uh, to kind of do with that. Renewable energy zones, recycling. Um, you know, we'd like to do some more. In, uh, in recycling investments, um, there's a recycling fund that, uh, the, again, the government have, have directed us uh, to, uh, to to invest 100 million dollars in the recycling sector. So we're we're working hard on that. Um, yeah, and, and look, the tech roadmap is um, another, I guess, directional. Influence for us, of course. Um, the government have come out. Talked. Well, 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 is it Ian? Yeah. I mean, it's nice, nice of you to say that, but my experience of the government targeting some of these technologies, uh, uh, you know, the market is already moving. I mean, we, we, we had uh, uh, Kerry Shot basically saying the other day to Giles that you know we're going at the uh, fast track pace. The, and I think that, that, that you know, oh, look, I'm, um, I don't know, the technology roadmap, but it doesn't sound to me, Ian, like there's actually all that much prospect of growing the balance sheet unless you get some other than transmission. I mean, you can't, hydrogen is still very risky business, uh, you know, at the CEFC lender, it's okay for Arena. Um, you know, but what about, I mean, there's things like copper string, I suppose, and these projects in the Northern Territory for export and in West Australia for export, but none of them are quite ready for CFC uh, money, are they? Maybe copper yeah, string? Yeah, the, the, the other, the, look, um, David, the other area that is is obviously right for investment, of course, is, is large-scale batteries. And pump storage, and you would have seen um, last year we we increased Hornstar's capacity by fifty percent with the first limited recourse loan, certainly in Australia, on um, 
uh, a, a grid scale battery um, and there are some other battery projects in our pipeline which we look forward to sharing with you very soon um, and so I think there will be a raft of big battery deals I mean only so many of them before I guess the econo economics start to erode uh, the previous battery but there's certainly room for batteries in, uh, uh, to deploy uh, significant amounts of capital into some battery deals for a while. Now, pump storage is another one of those big capex kind of items, and you know that is on the tech roadmap. You know, the large-scale eight-hour plus storage, um, and we, you know, we've got a couple of those projects that we've been actively, uh, you know, working with over the last well couple of years. Um, these things, you know, they're big, they're lumpy. Um, it, the, the, the EPC price is critical. Um, are they or are they not in, a, in, a, in the right part of the grid? How's the transmission um, cost going to impact on it all? So, you know, that we, we would also love to, to deploy some large licks of capital into pump storage over the and, coming and the, years. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do recall that uh, last time we spoke, you were hopeful of uh, funding a project in South Australia, as was uh, Darren Miller at Arena, but of course it hasn't happened so far. And I think myself, uh, that, that's because both for gas and pumped hydro, the battery economics have improved so fast and batteries do so many other things in the grid besides just shifting energy around that uh, they're rapidly coming to be the technology of choice in, in anything of shorter duration. Uh, I, I, I guess the um, uh, question I wanted to, and one little bit from me is in terms of other things like uh, microgrids and stuff like that, it seems to me that uh, lots of microgrids put together can be a, a new way of controlling the system. Is there anything on the horizon there? or any? Yeah, look, um, we were very pleased to be part of a, um, well, not te technically a microgrid, a virtual power plant in South Australia uh, quite recently, the end of, end of our last financial year, where um, the South Australian government, uh, using their public housing roofs, um, it has a plan. I think they've already done about 1,000. They're aspiring to get to about 3,000 houses with both 3.5 kilowatt hour, uh, so th sorry, uh, 5 kilowatt uh, PV and 3.5 kilowatt hour battery storage systems. Um, and we're putting in the senior debt. There's the governor putting in, uh, South Australian government putting in some money, Arena's putting in some money, and the plan would be to get to something like 20-plus megs of solar that is controllable uh, on the rooftops of uh, South Australian public housing, which, which is um, a pretty exciting uh, idea. We've had a few false dawns with VPPs, but um, this one is... Uh, is underway, so that's that. You know, we're excited about that. We'd like to see more of those things. They're not necessarily you know, straightforward. There's all the challenges, technology challenges of getting uh, all the inverters to talk to each other, or various residents to sign over. Um, you know, the control of the uh, of the power. So it's you know, there's a fair bit of work that goes into these sorts of things. So it was good that the South Australians, of course, could get to control their own public housing. Um, so that's that was a, a, a bit of an achievement, and um, you know, we, look, we'd hope to see some more of those.
And just quickly, and I, I, I stealing one from Giles again, but also on, on, on the bulk wind and solar, most of the projects that you're going to want to look at are going to require a PPA of something or, or something like that or support from a state government. Uh, in the last year, we've seen a lot of support from the Queensland government, the ACT government, uh, Snowy Hydro is uh, on, on the other hand and some... But I mean, from the projects you look at at the moment, how is the supply of projects looking and, and is there much of a PPA market around to support it still? Um, yeah, there are some projects around with with PPAs, um, but yes, that's definitely the constraining factor out there at the minute. And you know, you're probably starting to get, um, you know, the more corporate PPAs. We're seeing some of the technology companies uh, buying renewable energy uh, at the moment. We, we are still prepared to take merchant exposure in certain circumstances where we think the project is strategically interesting, it's in the right part of the grid, it's going uh, you know, to lead to, um, what's, you know, we, have, we need generation in that, you know, in that part of wherever it, it might be in the NEM. Um, but, you know, we, we're, like everyone, we're probably increasingly cautious about where uh, wholesale power prices are heading over the next five or ten years. Um, and, of course, you know, a lot of our, well, the private sector equivalent lenders, you know, the big Aussie majors and others, extremely um, reluctant to lend uh, merchant um, on merchant power prices, um, merchant projects. So um, that, is, that, that is a challenge. As there are less PPAs, the writ's been uh, filled out effectively. Um, it, it is creating a bit, you know, there's less of a price signal for investment. Um, you know, we're open minded if we think something's important there's a market gap strategically important project uh but it's um you know there's got to be a good reason for us to do that in close to ask a couple of quick rapid fire questions um you mentioned big batteries and um that usually gets me excited um is this coming in on already announced projects or are these going to be deals with ones that we don't yet know about um i think in one case the program has been announced um and mm -hmm. um <clears throat> so uh but well you know we're still we're still kind of working away uh with a couple of the proponents there and and there are other earlier stage ones so um yeah i think i think there's there's probably you know a, a couple of interesting large-scale battery projects that we'll uh, you know we'll be talking about it in the in the near term. Okay. Um, and but we also of course have just while we're talking batteries, we you know we still have our um, a, a more consumer finance business you know invariably with with partners like Plenty, who are, you know used to be called Rate Setter, um, where we've been offering cheap loans to to put batteries in houses, and that's been quite successful in South Australia and in regional New South Wales with the support of the respective state governments in those two places. Another one, just sort of off, off topic a little bit, um, I just got a couple of emails last week, so I sort of feel obliged to ask the question. There was an announcement about a hotel fund, um, in which I think it's, it's already been previously announced that the CFC is involved in. Um, can you just sort of clarify what on earth the CFC is doing in a hotel, uh, in, in, in a pub, in a, in a, in a fund-backing pubs? I presume it's to make their um, operations more efficient, particularly in the refrigeration and things like that, just, just very briefly? Yeah, absolutely. So that's pro-invest who... Yes. Um, 
who are a hotel operator and developer, and they um, they operate under the Holiday Inn banner in many cases, Um, and they are building out hotels in Australia over the coming uh, years uh, at a higher level of uh, you know energy efficiency and sustainability than we've ever seen before. So you know we're really excited to be working alongside those guys. They've got a, you know, okay. got a track record in this space. But yes, that's right. We're, we're, okay. They're going to be built to a spec that people have just never seen before, which um, you know is is important. Well, let's look forward to seeing that. One last question for me, and David might finish off with a couple more. But it just seems to me that you, what you've been hinting at during this conversation today is that um, you've got money and it's actually hard to get money out of the door. This seems to be an extraordinary situation for a country and a world um, where we know we have to transition very, very quickly. We know that there's a heck of a lot of capital out there. We're just kind of looking for the policies and the other factors to actually enable that investment to be made. Is that a fair summary of the situation and how do we actually get across this? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, we've got only so much capital um, <clears throat> to do, but ours is at the at the forefront and it's trying to help kind of unlock things um, and lead the charge, take risks that others aren't prepared to take. Behind us, of course, is untold billions of of interested capital because as a macro theme, you know, in, um, the superannuation sector, uh, the big banks, um, international funds all want to invest in the clean energy sector. It's, it's you know, it's it's a it's a good news story. It's it's you know, people, young people want to see their capital being put to to work. But it's not all about the capital, as you say. You know, you can, um, uh, you, you know, you, you it's it's really a combination of of the, you know, there's 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 capital. Um, there's regulation. You know, you've got to have the right price signals um, for people, for entrepreneurs to want to kind of do what they're um, required to do. So yeah, I think it's I think it's sort of working hand in glove with state and federal governments and and, and you know helping them uh, create the right environment. We we in Arena coming along with that sort of the front line of the capital and then drawing in. Uh, the private sector alongside us because they've got all they've got the the deepest pockets and and today you know we well last year I think for every dollar we put out the door there was about two two dollars thirty of um uh, of private sector capital so we always keep a bit of an eye on on that but um, yeah so it's look yeah we're 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 all about drawing in the um, uh, drawing in in the private sector ultimately. But, yes, they're only going to go there where they think they're going to make a reasonable return. Ian, um, my last question will be, uh, again, not directly about the CFC, but from your position as sitting across uh, the lending and financing of a lot of what happens in in the industry. And I think the CFC has been very important uh, role and it's grown a lot uh, as you are there. Um, but we look at all these policy changes and there's a massive amount of it. I'm just, you know, on the one hand, the policy changes create a lot of uncertainty, uh, the regulatory changes, and on the other hand, uh, there'll be some of us that think that they don't go far enough. I'm just wondering 
I guess, are you satisfied <laughs> with the reform process or would you be offering any suggestions or do you have any thoughts about it? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean, you know, we don't, I guess, participate in the public arena and in, in, the, in terms of uh, critiquing policy, particularly federal government policy, given we're, you know, we're part of the family, if you like. Um, so we, you know, we just try and uh, deliver what we what we can, decarbonise the economy, uh, stick to the act, stick to the investment mandates as they, um, you know, are passed down by the government. We, you know, we, we work, of course, with, with other governments, state governments. We, you know, we try and kind of encourage them and give them, show them what we're seeing and help that they'll, they'll come to sensible conclusions. But it's not really our uh, natural home to... Um, you know, we work closely with the department and, we, and, and, and the minister, of course, but we're not, you know, we're not out there uh, as advocates in a policy sense. We, we're certainly out there sharing knowledge, which I think is a really important thing for us to do. You know, what are, what are we seeing in terms of uh, where's, the bat, where's the battery market heading? Where's the, you know, what are the, what are the solar sector seeing today? EVs, the challenges with that. Um, all those sorts of things, I think, is is where we're best having a more public role. And, and what's your highest priority for this year ahead? Then, might I ask? Um, look, I'd really like to have some runs on the board with with some of this grid-related uh, investment, be it at the technology end or at the big lumpy infrastructure end, because. Till we sort all of that out, uh, we're not going to get an, another um, burst of investment in, in renewables, which is, of course, oh, so important. And we've seen that identified very clearly with uh, a, the AEMO, AEMO's ISP. But, yes, yeah, so, the, you know, grid reliability, um, uh, large-scale storage, hydrogen, uh, they're, they're the sort of areas... Um, that we're really focused on over the, over the coming twelve months. It'd be great to you know look forward to over the you know being able to say uh, even over the coming months, hey, we've just done a big distribution uh, transmission deal, we've done another big battery, um, first of our hydrogen deals. Maybe that might not be till till the end of the year or or even next year. But we're um, we're certainly uh, they you know they're all key priorities for us. Thanks very much for your nuance. Thank you, Ian, for joining the Energy Insiders podcast once again. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely to be here. And that was Ian Leamont from the uh, the CEO of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. David, look, an awful lot to unpack over there. Um, quite interesting. A couple of things that stood out for me. One was the write-down of the solar farm exposures, which I guess um, stands to reason given that um, everybody else is doing the same thing and CEFC also carries a similar exposure, so they are not immune to the delays, the grid delays that have impacted those investments. I thought also it was quite interesting what he was saying about gas. Um, the idea of a standalone gas generator just for the hell of it um, doesn't seem to appeal to him. Um, maybe they might, if the mandate is actually agreed to in Parliament, maybe they might consider some sort of peaking gas generators that could accelerate or fast track or expand the renewables portfolio. But that's about it as, as far as he could see. 
Yes, Giles. Uh, look, and everyone will have heard it for themselves, but the things that stood out for me, uh, and you mentioned the solar write-downs and there's been some other issues, is that execution is, is a real key to doing things well. One of the reasons about uh, that Neo and a company uh, we, we talk about a little bit here is, I think, a success story is because they execute well. They don't just announce projects. They get the projects built, built roughly on time, and then they work afterwards. Whether you look at policy, uh, whether you look at individual developers, uh, what we see is a lot of poor execution. And uh, so that that's uh, over time, that's got to get better. If you look at companies in the United States, like uh, Next Era, the reason they do so well is their execution is great. Same with Austin and Denmark and share, market, share uh, investors love that kind of thing. The other thing that stood out to me from uh, the, the, that interview was that he hopes to make some more announcements uh, along the battery and transmission thing. Uh, you know, I got the impression in the not too distant future and that's part of his job which is to grow his balance sheet which at five or six billion dollars just isn't big enough we want it to be 12 or 15 20 billion dollars because that that shows you that uh, clean energy finance is growing then well look i got the impression from um from the interview that there's a lot of capital um wanting to to, to get out and there's even capital from the cfc that wants to get out and i guess it's um, it's probably sort of a shortage of opportunities at the moment which is um holding everything back but um look it's interesting you mentioned battery storage um they he, ian did suggest that there was going to be a new battery development announced that we hadn't actually previously heard of. I do expect he might come in the back and, and help some of the other battery things that have been announced, but um, some new ones. There's some other battery news around the place this past week as well. One from the Northern Territory, they've actually initiated the tender progress for the what's going to be called the Darwin Big Battery. That's going to be about 35 megawatts, half-hour storage, and will largely displace gas generators, and just means that there's less spinning gas reserves running in the background, and um, that'll save them heaps of money and give a similar payback to the one that's we um, at um, Mount Newman, and um, people might remember we interviewed Jeff Avery a few months ago, late last year, and that was a very successful battery. And the, the other big battery, David, is um, is Sanjeev Gupta's Playford big battery in South Australia. Now he has been talking about this for a while, um, along with the Kaltana Solar Farm. But it's interesting to see that the South Australian government has signed a contract for its own electricity needs for the next 10 years. That will involve building the Playford Big Battery and the Kaltana Solar Farm. This replaces the failed um, idea of having a solar tower with storage. Solar Reserve didn't quite get the finance. In fact, they've gone out the door backwards and are now bankrupt. But we didn't get any indications on the price of this new contract, although we are assured it will save money from the current one. Uh, that's right. And I guess the point I'd make is that it just continues a run of project announcements. You might recall that earlier in the year, there was a whole lot of doom and gloom about everything was slowing down. Uh, by ITK's analysis, we're up to about 3,500 megawatts of uh, projects that have got the go ahead uh, this year so far. And then that's going to add to a growing surplus, uh, well, when I say surplus, growing share of variable renewable energy, assuming it can get built and actually running. Uh, and continue to put pressure on thermal generation and therefore on a, ele making electricity prices quite volatile for the next few years. So, you know, we, I, uh, I expect the share of uh, variable renewable energy, wind and solar, to go from its current 20% level up to uh, over 30% by uh, 2025. And that's all going to be coming at the expense of thermal generation. So it's something else to keep an eye on. Also, Giles, just uh, moving along very quickly because it's a long podcast. We had the election in Queensland that Labor uh, has won. 
And the uh, whilst we don't know the new energy minister, what I do think that means is that the copper string project, that's the project to uh, connect Mount Isa to the grid, is now uh, even more likely to go ahead than previously. It's kind of all a bit marginal economics up in North Queensland, an area of high unemployment. But uh, this is a project that will, uh, on, on, on the proponents' numbers, uh, make the electricity cost uh, cheaper in the long run. And that would enable more ores of various kinds, whether it's copper or, 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 uh, or, or zinc, to actually be mined because you can afford to mine a lower grade when your power, uh, costs are lower. And so mm. that's what's a good idea about that. Yeah, now look, you mentioned, uh, just, just actually going back to what you were saying about the 3,500 megawatts under your calculation that's been signed. The interesting thing I think about that is that that's come over and above, you could say, from the renewable energy target and largely becomes from contracts driven by corporates and by various governments. Now, the Queensland government, Labor government has been re-elected. It's still got its 50% target. They're only at about, they're going to be at best 20% by the end of this year. There's a lot to go to jump from 20% to 50%. Do you have any rough terms of capacity, how much more they need to install over the next 10 years to, to get to 50%? No, Giles, I don't. And I think uh, the problem for everyone at the moment is getting the transmission built to make it as smooth for everyone. What, what I can say is that I'm confident that in terms of generation production down in Victoria, uh, they'll get to 40 or 50% within by about 2025 and that's going to put terrific pressure on some of the coal brown coal generators which you will know and our listeners will know are not very flexible so they won't be able to ramp up and down in the way that coal generators in new south wales and queensland can so if, if they, they really want to run all the time and if they can't export that that surplus power that they're going to have up to new south wales and i don't think they'll be exporting it much to south australia uh, then that's going to put real pressure on your lawn. And, you know, we've also got the Portland aluminium smelter down there. So that's one thing. And I'm always pretty certain that um, the policy signal that um, uh, Matt Keane has, has and, and the New South Wales Liberal government has, has put out there by developing these renewable energy zones, as much as the actual investment or the transmission or anything, it's the policy signal of support that's encouraging this massive amount of support. And people can see that coal generators are going to close and prices are going to be volatile and therefore they're going to build more uh, supply in anticipation of that and building that more supply actually makes the closure of these coal generators even more likely so that's that's the scenario i'm looking at but the transmission is going to be terribly important so you know in queensland if you build a whole lot more projects now uh, there's nothing to do with it except export it down to um, 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 new south wales or or it comes at the expense of something else that's what's going to happen mm. Interesting stuff, David. Um, look, we're going to wrap it up there because uh, it was a good and long interview with Ian Lentimont from the CEFC, and I think we've probably taken up enough people's enough of people's times. Um, I'd just like to point out, as we thank our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon, that we're also now producing transcripts of this um, podcast, and particularly the interviews that we do. So uh, we've actually put a transcript of last week's episode, the whole lot, up there, and this week we have put a transcript um of uh, the interview with Ian Leemont um, up on the website too so you can find it there as well and that could be a very useful reference for people um wanting to go back to it anyway David thank you very much and uh, look forward to next week indeed Giles and uh, let, I, I hope I'm looking forward to next week I'm not completely convinced I am at the moment but uh over and out we all are okay bye for now
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no lock-in contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.